Wow family, we are blessed today. Dr. Randall Pinkett is our guest. Now, I'm going to tell you about him as a friend, but first, let me tell you what his folks say about him. Dr. Pinkett has established himself as an entrepreneur, speaker, author, and scholar. He is a leading voice for his generation in business, technology, diversity, and inclusion. As co-founder and chairman, CEO of his fifth venture, BCT Partners. He runs a multi-million dollar research training, consulting technology and data analytics firm that's headquartered in Newark, New Jersey. Dr. Pinkett has quite a list of degrees, which he's going to be sharing with you during our conversation at my request. And I asked him to, I asked him to do that as you listen forward, because he is an expert in several areas that relate to emerging technologies, big data analytics, social innovation, culture, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And he's a regular contributor on MSNBC, CNN, and Fox Business News. On the personal level, Dr. Pinkett and I continued to see people pre-COVID who were just running up in droves to talk with him, learn from him. He's a faith-based man who, had, who also appreciates and engages science in how he teaches and how he lives. And his theories and his ideas around asset-based connectivity for communities is where we're going to lean in today. Enjoy a conversation from a genius that is fueled by a heart of gold. Welcome, Dr. Randall Pinkett. And here he is, Dr. Randall Pinkett. Hey, listen, Dr. Pinkett, I am just, as I said, so excited about you being here. Every time I'm with you, I'm learning, I'm enjoying myself. But the important thing is I always lead with further thought about what you've talked about. Um, how are you doing? I am doing exceptionally well, Janice. And it's a great opportunity to connect with you. Congrats on all you're doing with your podcast. And I'm excited to be a part of the conversation. Oh, look, welcoming you to this conversation with our family is a dream come true. And I'm going to jump right in because I've already let them know some of the things you're doing professionally. But what I didn't do is share with them how you got to that point. Being a very highly educated man who has a tremendous success track record, share with us what that was like growing up for you to get you here. Well, I, I am... A, a child of parents who benefited from Brown versus Board of Education uh, to desegregate schools. I was born in 1971, and my parents moved my brother and I out of Philadelphia, where we were born, uh, to a predominantly white suburb in New Jersey, uh, East Windsor. And we were literally one of a handful, and I mean a handful of black families in East Windsor. And among the first of the generation of children of the parents of the Brown versus Board of Education ruling to, in a, you know, to, to have the opportunity to be in these schools and live in these communities and et cetera. And so I grew up as a black face in a white place. And for me, I had, a, I had tremendous educational opportunities. Uh, 
But my parents were also very intentional and very vigilant at ensuring that I also was able to define and affirm my identity and to really be supported in an environment where I saw reflections of myself, even if I didn't see it at the school. It might've been at my church, might've been at family functions. They had a organization they formed among the black families called Our Kids that would bring together all of the uh, black children across different grades and from different parts of the small community. Every month we might do something culturally enriching or around history and et cetera. And, and it was that foundation of kind of a strong cultural grounding and a strong educational set of opportunities that gave me a solid foundation to know who I was, to have a sense of where I was going and to give me a real solid platform upon which to build. And so that was kind of my coming up, so to speak, of building the foundation for what would come thereafter. And, you know, it's so interesting you talk about uh, your parents being beneficiaries of Brown versus Board of School of Education. In my office, uh, one of the pieces of art that I treasure so much is uh, a piece of art that commemorates that. Uh, mm -hmm. One of my dear friends who has passed away, Julius Chambers, uh, worked with the law team that uh, did the work for Brown versus Board of Education. Mm -hmm. And my school district was significant to that. I grew mm -hmm. up in North Carolina. What I share in this moment with you, and we've had several moments together that I'm just learning, is that, you know, I like I, I have similarity to your parents. I raised my kids in a community where they were amongst a handful of blacks. Mm -hmm. And they too have been able to be enriched as to their heritage from my family uh, and our church and our community activities. And I've been deliberate about how they've been educated and who they've associated with, as well as their uh, engagement in uh, social and civic activities. Uh, so I'm just really listening to you, not just with a keen ear, appreciating your experience, but a kindred ear. Um, I'm uh, 21 years older than you. And it impacted me before you mentioned your parents that you were that much later than Brown versus Board of Education, still one of a handful. That was a big message in a small moment. Talk a little bit more about it. How did that impact you, not just academically, but socially, emotionally? Um, I think that's important conversation, especially where we are today with so many well-meaning, good-hearted, intentionally uh, uh, focused on changing certain uh, dynamics, uh, people who still were not aware until they got sent home by COVID and mm -hmm. had uh, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, um, two of many, splashed onto their uh, media. Yeah, so I'll, I'll paint a picture for you uh, from me entering college. Uh, my father passed away when I was a senior in, in high school. Uh, my father was a professor at Spelman. Uh, he helped establish the computer science department at Spelman. So HBCU was, folks, HBCU. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. And I know you are a proud Aggie. <laughs> I know something about Aggie. <laughs> I know a little something about Aggie pride. You gave it to me. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what they do in, in, in those classrooms at A&T, but I tell you what, they need to bottle it, sell it, and it'll double their endowment. 
David, they send it to the moon. They send it to the moon. <laughs> I spoke at A&T's graduation. You should know that. So I, I've, I've had it. Yes, 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 yes. 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 So, you uh, know, when you've done that, you're an Aggie too. Well, there we go. I'm, I, 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 I am an honorary Aggie. You should know my, my, my first wife was a proud graduate of North Carolina A&T. And so we had uh, blue and, 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 and yellow all over the house. <laughs> blue and gold, baby. Blue and gold. Blue and gold. Yes, Thank you. you. Blue and gold yes, all over the house. Do. Thank you for that for that correction. Uh, yeah, but uh, back to you growing up and the impact of being one of few and how you established your wholeness in that. Yeah, so, so coming into college, still mourning the loss of my father, uh, still in the process of solidifying my identity uh, as, a, as a black man or a black young man and arrived on campus uh, having lost the, the 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 father figure in my life, and arriving in a place where I I, I desperately want to connect in uh, more substantively uh, to other black students on campus, but I came from the suburbs. You know, I wore different clothes, I, I spoke differently, I listened to different music, and I came on campus. Now, fortunately, I was an athlete that helped. I, I got to Rutgers on an academic and an athletic scholarship as a track and field athlete. And athletics gave me a, an entry point. But at the end of the day, Kat's like, yo, what are you wearing on your shoes, man? What are, the, what are, we, what are you wearing? And, 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 and what music did you just say you listened to? <laughs> so, so I, you know, I, I took some hits that first semester. And, you know, and, and Black folk are sometimes unforgiving when you are not presenting yourself in a way that is attuned to the culture. They will call you out. They will not call you in. And Won't so- they do it? <laughs> so, Won't so me is, do my, it? Won't they will do it. They will do it without hesitation, reservation, or consternation right there, right here. So I got a crash course in Black culture my first semester at Rutgers. And here's how, what it looked like. Bruh, stop wearing those. Go get these. Bruh, don't say that. Start saying this. Bruh, I know you are doing real well in school, but come with us to the party. And then we get to the party, bruh, don't do that move again. But <laughs> they're getting down on your moves. <laughs> well, look, you end, get to solve something. You get to solve something for us as a PhD and a social scientist, uh, which I do consider you to be a social scientist as well. Um, and you uh, get to solve for us. So is that rhythm genetic or is it cultural? You know, in <laughs> Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, uh, when uh, 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 when Sidney Poitier is having the conversation with, uh, um, with, with his intended father, he is sharing with him when he asks him, oh, well, you know, you guys, he says, you guys, you, you kids can dance so much better. He says, well, you do the Watusi. We are the Watusi. Now, <laughs> was he right or was he just leaning in for credit? <laughs> no, I think he got it right. I think we, he got it right. And I, I'll, I'll say it this way. I think, there's, I think there's, there's something in the genes, but the culture has to bring it forth. <laughs> if you're in the wrong culture, in the wrong environment, like culture is, it could be suppressed, it could be repressed, or it could be compromised. But you put yourself in the right environment, around the right people, it just flourishes. So it didn't take so me long. That's a social scientist in you, Dr. Pinkett. <laughs> and, 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 and might I also add, uh, for clarification from you, 
can that also include various forms of intellect and other skills and gifts and talents that we have need to be nurtured in the right culture to express itself forward? Absolutely. The, the, the classic debate amongst uh, sociologists and maybe psychologists, is it nature or is it nurture? And my yeah, response yeah. is, it is nature via nurture, mm -hmm. that you have a certain God-given set of gifts by nature. You know, some of us just aren't good at certain things. Some of us are very naturally good at certain things. But it is the nurturing of those gifts and the varying degrees to which they've been gifted to you that then determines the extent to which you're able to really manifest and achieve some measure of competence, if not excellence, in those gifts, without a doubt. And your parents knew this. Your parents knew this. So whether it was about your culture as a Black man, your culture as an American or as a student, they worked to give you all of it and to have it be prescriptive to you as an individual. Would that be a fair statement? That would be a very fair statement. Agreed. And, and I'm, I'm grateful that they were so vigilant in ensuring both a solid cultural and educational foundation, because naturally the absence of either one takes you down a very different path. The, the absence of the educational foundation limits your opportunities. The absence of the cultural foundation compromises your ability to be your full self and to bring your full self and to affirm and have pride relative to your full self. And I'd argue the latter is actually the more damaging, uh, the more um, saddening and the one that has the greatest uh, you know, uh, implications for your future. Because in the absence of having a strong cultural foundation, no matter what your culture is, and particularly in America where matters of race and ethnicity are so heightened in the United States of America, if you don't have that foundation, you are a leaf in the wind. Folks tell you what you can't do because of who you are, you believe them. Folks start stereotyping you on what you can't accomplish and you buy into it. And so that cultural foundation to say, no, no, I know who I am. You're not going to tell me who I am. I'm going to show you what I know who I am. That is the game changer right there. And I believe it can be limiting. I was having this conversation recently with someone, Dr. Pinkett, uh, in the last couple of weeks. And I was sharing that, you know, over COVID, one of the things that I committed to was to have my son teach me to swim. My two adult children chose to quarantine here with me after my husband, who you see over my left shoulder on the wall in picture, passed away of Alzheimer's in August. And um, I said, you know, Brett, I'm going to have you teach me to swim. That's what I'm going to do for myself. And all this, these years as an adult in California, I have lived with a swimming pool with weather that lets you swim, you know, three, 65 days a year. And I don't do it because as a child, I am one of six daughters and I was the dark skinned, nappy headed one. And so I didn't want to jump in the public colored swimming pool. We were a segregated community. And so this wasn't around white people. I was ashamed. It was around my people because I was one of six daughters and I was the one who had the nappy hair. And mm. I didn't want to get out of that pool, swimming cap or not, with my hair too frizzed up and take two hours to get me processed 
back to how women thought black women should look. This was before James Brown said, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. And we all threw our fists up in the air and wore our hair natural. And so I let it inhibit me uh, from learning to swim and many other things around the lines of you saying uh, your pride in who you are can impact what you're able to bring to the table and what you're able to walk away with. That's mm -hmm. a simple thing to talk about not learning to swim. Mm -hmm. it, was the, it, it was the psychological damage it did to me that suggested I wasn't worthy of being in public that way. Mm -hmm. No, that's real. And uh, I believe there's two key ingredients uh, that we all need to have a proper foundation, uh, identity and purpose. Identity, I describe as an anchor. It's what grounds you. Purpose is like a compass. It's what guides you. Like identity keeps you grounded. Purpose keeps you going. And there's a great quote that I won't get exactly right, but the quote says the following, that the key to life is knowing who you are and where you're going. Who you are is your identity. Where you're going is your purpose. There's another great quote that says, the role of parents is to give their children two things, roots to always know where they came from and wings to fly. To me, the roots are identity. The wings to fly, that's purpose. And that's what my family gave me was 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 the roots and the wings. It, it must have really impacted you. One of the things I promised our family that we would lean in on, I told them that I didn't know if you want to lean in because you and I did not communicate before this podcast about what you talk about, but that I just really wanted to uh, have our conversation theme itself from your actual PhD thesis, which was titled Creating Community Connective Sociocultural Constructionism mm -hmm. and an asset-based approach to a community <laughs> technology and community building. And when you did that in 2001, 20, solidly 20 years plus, <laughs> some, uh, plus a few months ago, you didn't predict what the world would have seen and how we would all run home Mm. 20 years later, mm -hmm. in the pandemic mode, pandemic around health, pandemic mm -hmm. around finance, and pandemic yeah. around race. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you were pretty dynamic, and I can't suggest that I'm going to sit here and open your paper up in conversation to people as well as you can, but why do you think you were so on point then? And, <laughs> and, and, and listen, listen to this now. You started this conversation by reminding us your parents were educated as products of Brown versus Board of Education, which maybe we should have just spelled it out since many of our, 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 our uh, family is a global family. Some mm -hmm. may not be readily familiar, but may have Googled up while mm -hmm. we're talking. Um, but maybe it's important to talk about that a little bit. But how do you think, Dr. Pinkett, that you start out talking about a 20-year gap of, or a 20-year span from your parents being the benefactors of what was going to be a great equalizer for us and having their son 20 years later still be one of four or five kids. And now you write a paper in mm -hmm. 2001 
and 20 years later, folks could have read your paper and we'd have been in a better different, <laughs> better and different place. Did I get that right? You got it right. You got it right. You connected all the dots as you as you do oh so well. Uh, so my my uh, my doctoral work looked at what we then called the digital divide. And that divide was defined by, by me and others as the gap between those who benefit from technology and those who don't. Now, some defined it as the gap between those who have access to technology, but access alone is not enough. Uh, we know this. Uh, Wait a minute, hashtag. Wait a minute, hashtag. Access, access alone is not enough. That's right. I want That's that right. to sink in. That's okay, right. Somebody, please. somebody tweet that. Somebody post it. Somebody Instagram yeah. that. Yes. Please, please. Yeah, because access to a school is not enough. If you're not learning at the school, access didn't get you anything. Access. Or if you're not able, if you're not able to benefit from all of the extracurricular of the school, my kids go. attended the school, and the school cost a certain number of thousands of dollars a year. But then there was also another level of certain thousands of dollars a year to participate in the school trips and the events and do those kinds of things. And we actually ended up funding some kids who were on scholarship for the academics to be able to have the full experience around the extracurricular. So if you yeah. want to paint it real clear for the people who make up our family, they can relate to that. There we go. So yes, there we go. Uh, hashtag access is not enough. Mm -hmm. And what we did for my doctoral work was at the time it was, it was, it was revolutionary. Uh, we, we worked with a low income housing development in Roxbury, Massachusetts. We wired the, the uh, building for high-speed internet. We had a computer uh, offered to every family for free. And we had a technology center where we trained all the families and how to use technology. And then we built out an online platform for the families to be able to communicate and to share information about their needs, their wants, their passions, their desires, what they might who they might want to connect with. And if, and if anyone can remember back to 2001, we were using dial-up connections in 2001. You had a screeching sound on a phone line to get a 56K connection that might have got you a picture in about two minutes. So that's, that's, what, that's the world we were living in in 2001. So to put high-speed internet into a low-income community was considered otherworldly. But that what we did then was we studied... And we, you know, and you, like you said, we're living in this pandemic world now. Well, how could families benefit if they had access to all this information and resources, and and how could it improve their jobs or employability or their kids' ability to work well in school or to connect with loved ones outside of the country? And well, right now it's a matter of work. Period. Because you know, I'm in the employment field and work from home is still going to be a, a an added part of how the new dynamic of how we work. And I'm going, I'm headed to North Carolina to be with my mom on uh, 4th of July. It'll be my first flight since we all got sent home in quarantine over a year ago. And her part of Eastern North Carolina is one of the poorest parts of the nation, as you well know, and uh, data supported and internet is an issue and i am running meetings and attending you know events and doing keynotes by internet and i'm challenged and i'm telling my mom i don't know how long i can stay mom because internet the connectivity is not there 
you know? Yeah. So, so, so it, it, it's a big thing, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And, and, and that's why we call, I, I call my dissertation creating community connections uh, because the connections that you're able to make when you have the access that you're able to benefit from are, are immeasurable. And we've seen two dynamics, uh, one positive, one not so positive. The not so positive is COVID-19 has exacerbated the gap between those who have that access or not. Who could school from home? Who had access at home and, and, and could work digitally? Who's a knowledge worker that's not affected by having to go outside of their home in the first place to earn a living? But then the other positive second order effect of COVID-19 has been, it has um, either forced or invited more people than otherwise would have been connected to now be more connected. My mother didn't know what Zoom was. My mm. mom didn't care what Zoom was. But once her church said, if you want to worship, you better figure out how to get on Zoom. She, she's like, she's calling me. How do I get on this Zoom thing? And so there's a whole segment of, of, our, of our society. And I'll give you another example. Like I, I got a soul food restaurant in my neighborhood. They weren't online. They weren't taking orders for delivery on some app. They have an app. They will accept your order online. They will deliver it to your doorstep. And so they've, they've ushered in a whole new digital capability that they never would have probably considered had it not been for COVID-19 forcing their hand to say, you want to stay in business? You better get with the program. This past year has been about the pivot. What's your pivot? If you ain't got no pivot, COVID is going to pivot on you. Mm -hmm. A brilliant woman, brilliant, named uh, Farron Melton. She heads global procurement for uh, Bristol-Myers Square. A mutual friend of ours. A mutual friend of ours. Yes, yes. And one of the best and biggest messages delivered at the WeBank Forum was by Farron when she encouraged companies, number one, understand and value the pivot. Number two, don't be afraid of it. A lot of people understood they needed to pivot, but they were afraid of it. I think that you put the social aspect as well as the business aspect to how you thesis around connectivity makes a lot of difference. And I'm one of those fans of yours. Yes, I am a fan. I'm one of those fans of yours, uh, unabashedly and proudly so, who thinks you should revisit that thesis and do thesis, you know, uh, uh, 102. Go back to it and bring it forward for us. I think a lot of people are ready for it. A lot of people grew up living the threat that you uh, exposed us to 20 plus years ago. Got it. You want you want the remix, Janice? Is that what you want to do? The I want the remix. The remix. <laughs> I want the remix. And you, you know, know why? You know why I want the remix? Because today, Dr. Pinkett, we have more corporations, more NGOs, and more individual uh, citizens, you know, tree shakers, who are having the same conversation without a lot of the data, knowledge, and, uh, and ability to uh, put form to it that you did back then. I'm uh -huh. very serious about that. All right. Well, maybe we collaborate on that as our as as a as a joint project right there, Janice. I know you are becoming a more and more prolific author, and so uh, I can appreciate the remix. And I'm a big music fan, so I appreciate when an artist either remakes a song and makes it better, or remixes their own song and makes it better. So 
the timing might be perfect. Uh, this is a conversation we've been having for the past year about we've been revisiting a conversation about the digital divide because COVID has illuminated and 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 the events of the summer of 2020 with George Floyd's murder have all illuminated further the deep disparities and inequities that exist in our society. And digital is one of them, but not the only one. But certainly we see how it's played out as far as who has had the ability to benefit and who has not. And that has had implications far beyond COVID, but people's jobs, their livelihood, their education, their kids' schooling, their prospects, the list goes on and on and on. And, and certainly that young, uh, was she 14 years old? The young lady who uh, took that video of George Floyd and uh, that, that technology, uh, while it informed all of us, it had both sides of that screen uh, share trauma. George lost his life as we watched it, but that young lady will forever be impacted in her life emotionally by having the bravery to film that and the grave misfortune to be present to it. Mm -hmm. And she won uh, a Pulitzer special recognition, Darnella Frazier. Uh, yes. They've announced that she's got a Pulitzer recognition for her bravery, her courage, and for enduring the trauma, to your point, that she endured, uh, which which she's been, or, or, or members of her inner circle have been clear, was a very difficult experience for her. Uh, yes. But without her, we would not have had the catalyzing effect uh, that was long overdue for the injustices that have persisted across uh, decades that George Floyd was simply the uh, you know, the, the figurative straw that broke the camel's back and, and, the, and the world said, we've had enough. Yeah, and so if, if we pull together the conversation we're having, and I'm so grateful that you are open to letting us theme around your thesis of over 20 years ago, it just really intrigues me. I think that it would be so interesting, exciting and teaching for our family if you can help them to understand, number one, why you chose that? Because we started out about how you grew up and, you know, um, I don't know if you are comfortable with it, but you were probably nerdy and cool at the same time. An athlete's always cool, right? But there's somebody who's leaning in. I mean, you've got engineering degrees, so you've got, I mean, your education, it just goes on and on and on. What are you, your Rose Scholar, MIT? <laughs> Throw it at us. Come on, drop it on us. <laughs> You're all right with me, Janice. Uh, so yeah, I got an eclectic mix of, uh, you know, kind of, uh, you know, nerdy and and smooth at the same time. You know, uh, I mean, I, I've always been into technology. I remember when I was a kid, uh, my brother and I told my our dad that we wanted a video game, uh, which was big, you know, and it's still big for that matter. What am I saying? And I remember what our dad said to us. He said, if you want to play a video game, you have to design the video game. He got us a computer instead of a video game. And we were so upset. We were like, dude, nobody asked for a computer. Uh, <laughs> really ungrateful if I look back, right? <laughs> he, but he, but he was like, you know, I, I want you to be a producer, not a consumer. And if you are into this math and science thing, which I was very much into math and science, gifted in math and science, then you need to produce and not consume. And so I went on to Rutgers to study electrical engineering. Um, I was blessed to be named a Rhodes Scholar, the first and only African-American to win the Rhodes Scholarship at Rutgers. That took me off to the University of Oxford in England, where I studied computer science. 
And then from Oxford in England, I matriculated to MIT, where I earned three more degrees. I earned a master's in, in uh, electrical engineering. I earned a master's in business administration, and I earned my PhD at the MIT Media Laboratory. And there was where I did my dissertation work around digital divide, creating community connections. But it all harkened back to me not getting the video game, Janice. Yes, <laughs> I was going to the yes. video game. <laughs> props up to pop, props up to pop. Uh, but, you know, I, I really wanted you to walk through that because with all of the education and all of the natural uh, uh, talent and skill, they are different things um, and you possess them both, you still are able to talk to people who aren't gonna carry those degrees in a way that they are educated. And that's the gift I think you have, okay. is that you're able to uh, give qualified data and intelligence to a conversation that allows all of us to benefit from it. In that spirit and keeping true to my desire for us to uh, kind of frame in from your thesis uh, over 20 years ago, what is an asset-based approach to community technology and community building. Mm -hmm. We talked about, uh, you know, the value of it. And, you know, I could layer in things, Dr. Pinkett, like you can't have certain kinds of surgeries performed in certain communities if they don't have internet. So okay. much of medicine is tech-based now. So you're really removing people to a very uh, uh, modern-day rural uh, uh, aspect without the advantage of the agriculture that historic ruralness gave us. You're basically just creating these little uh, 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 communities that unless people can show up and work 20 years at, 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 at work that technology is replacing as well, you're going to create a big part of your uh, of our world community even that is not participating in how we do it. And I would dare say that's a national threat. So how does community, how does asset-based approach to community technology and community building think on this? I'm sure that was part of your thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So I was inspired uh, while I was doing my doctoral work by the work of two uh, academics at Northwestern University, uh, Kretzman and McKnight. And they popularize an approach to community development called asset-based community development, ABCD. And when I first learned of ABCD, I was, I was fascinated. And the basic premise is we tend to look at communities through the lens of their deficiencies. We see crime, we see drugs, we see schools that aren't working, we see uh, lack of jobs or opportunity. And that's a very deficiency-based model to look at a community. You're looking at it through the lens of what they don't have, what's missing. Asset-based community development says, well, no, there's another way to look at communities. Is the glass half empty or is it half full? What if we looked at the community through the lens of its assets? Look at the schools that are in place. Look at the knowledge and the wisdom and the passions of residents. Look at the community-based organizations or resident-led organizations or the churches that exists and the faith-based institutions. If we look at the community through the lens of its assets, we see a very different picture. It's like taking off glasses and putting on a whole new set of glasses. Just like, oh my goodness, look at all these assets. And if we begin the conversation of how we build communities 
based on their assets, not their deficiencies. We have a very different mindset. We have a different frame and we have a different approach because now we're building off of what's there as opposed to trying to fix what's broken. Do you follow me? And so I took that same thinking of asset-based community development. And as you saw, the subtitle of my dissertation is an asset-based approach to community technology and community building. So I said, what if we use technology to help illuminate the assets in the community? And so I mentioned before, we built this web-based platform that helped to connect residents to learn more about their interests, their skills, their hobbies, their passions, share stories with one another. I was trying to create an infrastructure that said, we're not just going to give you a computer and give you an internet connection. We want to scaffold you to see your community through a whole different lens and to help you to understand and have further appreciation for what's right next door to you. Like, did you know that your neighbor is a plumber? Do you need something fixed? Knock on the door. Did you know that there's a young person who could tutor your kid on how to write good English papers? They're right down the street. Did you know that? And so it was a way of reconnecting and reestablishing a sense of community using technology, using an asset-based approach. That's, that's the essence of that approach, an asset-based approach to community technology and community building. That was the spirit of the thesis. Writing about asset-based uh, approaches got you a degree. To what degree, I'm going back to it, to what degree can we use that same thinking and remix it to, to, to the world today? What would be some key things we could do? Well, I, I think what we're now seeing is when we're quarantined from home and we're sheltering in place, we have to kind of reimagine how we remain connected to each other. And I'll go, I'll say it a little differently. Think about, you know, certain office places and you can appreciate this. You know, you have serendipitous contact with people. You bump into them in the hallway at the water cooler, but it's very happenstance. There is no such thing as a happenstance connection in a pandemic. There's just none. You don't just bump into somebody when you're sheltered in place. You don't just stumble up, stumble by somebody to have a random conversation. You have to be, you have to not only be intentional, you have to be vigilant about how you connect with loved ones, how you reach out to colleagues, how you contemplate maintaining, nurturing, and expanding relationships. So if it's on the job, you know, it's, it's the virtual cocktail hour. If it's the family, it's the, it's the virtual family reunion, right? Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, these are the things that we have to reimagine and be more intentional and vigilant about because if not, we're losing those connections. You know, when you've got a loved one, uh, a, a senior who, who knows they can't leave the house because we know what the numbers said about the elderly and COVID and the like, you've got to make certain all the more that you're, you gotta, you gotta elevate how much you're connecting in with that person because right now they're isolated. And when you, when you talk about this and you bring it to life so well, it's important I think also to think about how each of us not just be informed about it, but be actionable to it. Mm -hmm. Simple steps that help us to, if the goal is to benefit the community, 
by looking at the community through a different lens, mm -hmm. then the role of each of us becomes important. Let's say we segregate into four key groups. We've got the group that is corporate or employing. Mm -hmm. We've got the group that is government. We've got the group that is everyday working, which includes professionals, you know, medical, uh, uh, all the professions, as well as the light industrial worker, mm -hmm. right? And then we've got the educators. Now, you've got also star power that is that kind of quasi fifth element. Anybody in either of those groups, any of those groups or outside of those groups who got a million followers mm -hmm. to make it simple, right? Athletes, movie stars, you know, uh, politicians who step outside of their, uh, 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 of their uh, 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 halls of, of, of government. Um, how do each of us play into that? How do each of us have the best specific actionable voice to, 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 to bringing that new lens to our communities? You know, I, it's, a, it's a great question. And I think it's incumbent upon us uh, to ask ourselves the question, how well connected are we to our local physical community? And that community could be interpreted to your question a, a number of ways. It could be your community at work. Uh, it could be your community in your immediate geography. It could be the people with whom you're connected that may not be in the same place, but you have a relationship to them. Not in the same time zone. There you go. There you go. That's exactly right. And I know your family is global, so they can relate and understand where we're going here. And I think it's then asking uh not what that community can do for you, but what you can do for that community. Um, because Go you're gonna... on, John Kennedy. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely right. And, um, you know, you, you know, democracy and, you know, community and all these lofty ideals are, are contact sports. You don't, you don't facilitate change on the sidelines. You don't facilitate change, uh, you know, with a phone in your hand alone, just sending out messages. It, it, it's a contact sport. You got, you got to, you know, you got to get in and you got to get involved and you have, and it therefore ask the question, you know, we talked earlier about uh, nurture and nature and identity and purpose. I believe those same concepts tied directly back to what change and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a man of faith here. What change were you called and placed on this planet to facilitate? And I believe we are all called and are placed here for a reason. That's your purpose. Getting back to the conversation of identity and purpose. And you could call your purpose your mission. And so if you're living a purpose-driven life, now it's asking the question. There's something that I've been blessed with or gift, gifted with. And the reason we call it a gift is because you're supposed to present it back to the world. So what's your gift? What is the world and the universe? And, and to me, the higher power is telling you, you're here for a reason. You're not here by accident. And if you woke up today, that calling, that mission, that purpose is still in motion. And therein lies the opportunity to direct you, getting back to purpose being a compass, to direct you to say, okay, well, I'm called, if I'm Janet Bryce Howroyd, I'm called to create wealth. I'm called to create opportunity. 
They called me to create jobs for folks that might not have jobs. They called me to be a role model and an example for other people of what it looks like for a black girl from North Carolina A&T State University to Thank succeed. You, <laughs> and so, you know, you're living in your purpose. And it's an example of how you then connect yourself into communities, your Aggie community, you know, your business community, you know, your family community and say, I'm here not called to be successful, which is what you do for yourself. I'm called to be great, which is what you do for somebody else. That's so powerful. I mean, I feel like I've been in church, you know, <laughs> we were talking about your mom zooming in to the church and I've been zooming in to the Potter's house on Sundays and T.D. Jake's just been blessing me all over the place. Uh, and and, and, and I, I mean, you like a little bit of T.D. Jake's with a big old message uh, right now. Well, I got a three-piece suit, Janice, too. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. You, hey, look, you don't have to get ready because you stay ready. <laughs> Um, Amen. You, Amen. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and, and, and in that same vein, I think one of the things that I've appreciated about you is that no matter where I've seen you, and you and I chatted a little bit about this before we started this conversation just now, uh, seeing each other in some really incredible places where we're both looking to uh, do good service, uh, like organizations like NMSDC and WeBink and NGLCC. Um, yeah. and, and, and you've always left people enamored and not simply inspired, but educated. Um, I think part of that is what you're teaching. I think part of it is how you're teaching it. You're teaching it from a body that appears to be a very healthy body, spiritually, physically, and mentally. A lot of people have been dealing with this stuff in COVID who went into their homes thinking they were very successful. And after several months of being at home, started to question what success looks like for them. Now, I lean in with uh, Earl Nightingale that success is the progressive realization of a worthy ideal. So when I went into COVID, I was clear about what I needed to do. You know, I told all my teams um, that we're not just going to go through this, we're going to grow through this. Dr. Pinkett, when you're teaching and when you're sharing with us, I think people are always mesmerized, even as they are being taught. And I make that distinction because a lot of people can, can inspire you, but two days later, you, you kind of lose it like a sugar hot high. But you educate people. You educate from such a clear space. How important has it been for you and how have you achieved that you, if I'm correct in my thought, that you not only fed your mind with all those degrees you have, but you give a great degree of attention to your, uh, your, your spiritual self and your physical self as well. Now you, uh, I appreciate the, uh, the, the, the kind words. And, and you know, it's funny, my, my first business in college was entitled Mind, Body and Soul Enterprises. Yes. And, uh, we were about developing the mind, the body, and the soul. And that is a metaphor in some ways for how I, I think about my own balanced development. And I mentioned, uh, I think I mentioned I was an athlete in college, a, a high jumper, a long jumper, and a sprinter. Um, and so, again, my, my parents give me that educational foundation and challenging me to, to work hard in school, uh, to learn and to grow educationally. And not just knowledge, but good judgment. You know, wisdom is, a, is an equation. 
Wisdom equals knowledge plus judgment. And I call knowledge book smarts. I call judgment street smarts. You know, like you, like you, you make good decisions, you know, you, you read the room. Um, and, and so I, I, I've, I've been blessed to have been challenged uh, to really be my best intellectual self. And they've, they instilled in me an intellectual curiosity that has lasted a lifetime. Um, and then athletics has been a passion of mine my entire life. I mean, I was three sport athlete in, in, in high school, male athlete of the year, NCAA scholar athlete of the year, NCAA uh, scholar athlete hall of fame. And, and I, that discipline of training five, I'm bowing six, down, I'm bowing down. <laughs> training five, six, seven days a week, uh, three hours a day. Cause you know, Division one athletics is no joke. It's a part-time job. And that willingness uh, to kind of hone one's physical acumen um, and try to compete at a, at a, at a, at a, at a level um, against others has given me a tremendous foundation. I mean, I still um, exercise and, and, and maintain nutrition and wellness and mental health uh, as a function of maintaining good physical health that has also lasted me a lifetime. And then lastly, to the matter of faith, you mentioned T.D. Jakes, you know, my, uh, my pastor, uh, DeForest Buster Stories, who you've perhaps crossed paths with at some of George Frazier's events, uh, mm -hmm. is, uh, is nearing retirement. And he has been a tremendous mentor, a friend, role model, and influence on me, as have been my prior pastors, John Matthew Borders, when I was at MIT in Boston, and others, uh, and now my, my, my wife, I consider to be a, like a, bi a biblical scholar. And mm -hmm. our journey together is one that has really reinforced my faith and her faith. And so uh, I came to a crossroads around my uh, graduate years at MIT, where I committed my life to God. I got baptized. I wasn't going to church because mom and dad made me. I was going because I realized that a solid spiritual journey and walk um, was essential because you know, my treasure is not stored on earth. My treasure is stored in heaven. And so um, I'm trying to be uh, observant and, 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 of, and learning and responsive to the word of God as a guiding light for how I live my life to find that balance between the mental, the physical and the spiritual. That's, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. It's, it's, it's a, I, I pray that so many others stick to it as well, that they get the stickiness from you of it. Um, and it was so important for me Dr. Pinkett, to have our conversation around the body of work you did scholastically uh, at the front of our conversation, uh, because I know that the world came to know you, uh, the nation came to know you as a competitor on The Apprentice, which was a competition show for business. And it had attached to it an arm of charity competition that had to occur. And I, rem I, I remember it, but I'm sure everybody has availability to it to know that even when you got rained out, you succeeded. And, um, <laughs> you did and, your and, homework. And, and, yeah, and with no, look, with no, no, no political uh, intent here, Donald Trump was uh, uh, the man running the apprentice. And yeah. one of the things, and you talked about spiritual, and this is where I'm coming uh, from, you'll know the Bible reference I'm making. And look, our family is broad. Some are Bible, some are, you know, Quran, Torah, you know, and some sit outside by the beach and, you know, just appreciate the moon and the, and the sky. Uh, and all are welcome. 
in our family. Uh, but you'll you you you'll hear me on this, and and you'll recognize game recognize game. Um, you <laughs> hashtag you were you were told you won because you were a kind leader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You were told that by Donald Trump. I that was. you are a kind leader. Mm-hmm. No, you're right. Let your light so shine. <laughs> Amen. 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 No matter no no matter where you are, because you know, was it Peter who Jesus sent to speak to people who spoke a different language? Not because Peter was a better follower, but Peter had a broader base of communication skills. <laughs> yes. Right. That's right. And That's so, right. And so you know where I'm going with this, competing in The Apprentice and winning, what do you think you taught? Now, one lesson we already talked about, you taught people, you taught us that people know kindness when they see it. And I take kindness to be a part of the word kindred, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's, it's how we stay related is through kindness. Yes, uh, I'm not a linguist, but... uh, in any event, you show the world your elegance. You didn't brag about your education. You let it push you forward with the humility that I'm sure ancestors without that education would have been so proud of. You, you know, uh, what did you teach the apprentice audience? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. Um... I think I think there were two lessons. One you touched on, and one I'll, I'll add. Uh, I, I remember when I was selected from the auditioning process uh, to be on the cast of the fourth season of The Apprentice, and I was talking with members of my executive team and just talking about a strategy going into the competition because it's, it's a competition. You know, it's reality TV, but it is a competition. So I'm like, what should my strategy be? And you're and then, an athlete, you understand competition. There you that's exactly right. And I'm a, and and I am competitive. Let's make yes. sure we're clear on that. And I'm competitive. Yes. I'm very competitive. Yes. Yes. So the, the 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 decision of strategy was twofold. Strategy one was I was I'm an engineer, and so it's easy to pigeonhole me like I'm just a technologist, but I said I'm gonna brand myself as a problem solver. I can solve any problem. I don't care what the problem is, and every week is a new problem. But the second thing that I think ended up being the the difference maker, in addition to that, was I'm going to treat people the way that I would want to be treated. End of sentence. Because if you've seen The Apprentice, and some of your family may not have seen it, it's a reality show. Every week, uh, the the 18 candidates are are broken up into two teams. They're given a business task. There's a a winning team and a losing team, and somebody from the losing team gets fired down to the final two and then the winner. And so, as a result of this surreal reality environment uh, and its competitive nature, people could be very backstabbing. They might be on your, and every week, every team has a project manager. So people are strategic. Okay, here's, here's a strategy. I'm on a team, I'm not the project manager. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna tank the project manager's performance so that when we end up deciding who will be fired, the PM will get fired because our team did a bad job. Some people did that strategy. Some people would say one thing to a teammate and then do another because they wanted the other team member to look bad. That was a strategy and all kinds of nefarious backstabbing, backbiting, undercutting stuff. 
I and, went to and, consum- and in your season, in your season, in do my you season. think these do you think these people people were scripted to that or were they revealing who they were? Revealing who they were, hands down, because we weren't scripted. It was 24 hours, seven days a week, cameras running, no stop. We never stopped. There was never a moment where the producer said, stop, let's have a conversation. It was life on camera filmed. So wow. people showed them to their true selves. And to your question of lessons, I said, I'm, I'm going to come in. I'm going to treat people with respect. If I'm on their team, I'm going to work hard for them. I'm going to try to help them win if they're my PM. And if you look back at the season four of The Apprentice, you'll notice that there were three moments over that season where Donald gave the losing team the opportunity to draft somebody from the winning team because they were they were they were outpersoned. It was two against five. And so we said, okay, right. you can draft from the other team to balance things out. All three times that happened, yeah. I got drafted. Mm-hmm. Now you got to ask the question: why would a team want to bring you back to their team if they didn't like you, if they don't trust you, they can't count on you, if they don't think you operate with integrity and with honesty? And it was unanimous. They said, no, we want Randall to come back because when Randall was on our team, he treated us the way we wanted to be treated. And that was lesson number one, was that lesson in a competitive, surreal reality environment, the golden rule still applied. The second lesson was, if you saw my finale, Donald asked me to share the title. And without getting too deep down that rabbit hole, when I look at my performance objectively against my adversary in the finale, it was not a tie. We were not equally matched. I say that respectfully and humbly. So when Donald asked me to share the title, many said, and I, and I agree to this day, it was insulting. It was straight out insulting to ask me to share a title I had earned. And, my, and, and, I, and there were rumors that he might try to pull that stunt. So I was prepared for some semblance of that scenario to play out. But the message I sent, in as much as I had an undefeated record as a project manager, three and oh, my adversary was two and one. I had a seven and four record for my team. She had a four and seven record for her teams. And here's the kicker, Janice, you you hit it. The final task was a charity fundraiser. I raised $15,000 for my charity in one day. She raised zero Mm -hmm, dollars. By any other objective measure, this was not an opportunity to talk about a sharing. So Mm -hmm. I said then what I say now and what I'm proud I said then, which was if there is going to be a winner tonight, it's going to be one and it's going to be me. And the message I sent was when you have earned the title, do not be afraid to claim the title. And that's what I did. Well, I guess that could be a mic drop, but you've got so much more, so much more uh, to share. Uh, Dr. Pinkett, I want to lean in a little bit longer on that one thing, because I think a lot of people confuse being comfortable in winning with being charitable mm-hmm. in spirit. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I think there's a lesson in there that you're uniquely position to teach since you had to stand the test of your character before Mm -hmm. the world. It was a Mm -hmm. top rated show. 
-hmm. Let me ask you this question, please answer. Um, we get the impact from the asking of if you should share the prize, mm -hmm. share the number one spot. Mm -hmm. What do you think the intent of asking that was? And you can only think unless somebody's verified for you differently. That's right. I think the intent was without question to undermine the victory, to, to taint the victory, to delegitimize the victory. Because my opinion is that excellence is hard to be denied. It was hard not to say Randall's the winner. I mean, how do you not give the undefeated project manager 7-4 record guy who raised $15,000, how do you not give him the title? Oh, but if I didn't want him to have the title, if I begrudgingly I have to acknowledge his excellence. The, I can put my knee in the neck of that win. That's exactly right. If I could put my knee in the neck of the win, how can I do it? What's the intent? Here's the intent. Okay, fine. I got to give him the victory. How can I? delegitimize it and put the spotlight back on him that I'm not the bad guy. He's the bad guy. So let me say this. Let me fire me, hire both of you. And Randall, what do you think about hiring the runner up? That's what he did. And again, I, I'm, I'm so glad because I had a solid identity and I knew who I was and I had a sense of purpose. I don't need your job. I am self-made. I'm self-employed. I appreciate being on the show, but if it doesn't go down the way it needs to go down, I'm good, boo. So let's have it go down like this. Your intent is to try to delegitimize my earned victory. My response is I'm not going for it. And had he said, Janice, and I haven't told this uh, too often, but had he said, Randall, I'm still hiring both of you. I had a scripted response. My scripted response verbatim was, if you can't see that I'm the clear winner under these circumstances, guess what? I quit and you're fired. <laughs> oh, oh, Randall. Oh, Randall. <laughs> um, I, I, I so appreciate you uh, as I expected you would be and only known you to have been in such uh, circumstances, uh, completely transparent and ethical in your response. Uh, the second question to that experience, I only had two questions to that experience, uh, but it was a big one for not just you, but for many of us who were watching and cheering you on. Um, you told us what you taught. What did you learn from that experience? Yeah. Is that a fair question? Oh, that's, it's, a, it's a great question. It's a great question. Um, uh, I, so let me contextualize my journey to The Apprentice. Um, I, knew, I knew a little bit about Donald. Uh, I, lived, I grew up in New Jersey, as we mentioned before. He was you know, real estate in New York, kind of celebrity businessman. Uh, larger than life personality. I didn't have as much context on what we have now learned around his history with housing discrimination or the Central Park Five uh, or, or, or other elements of his past that paint a much different picture than he would lead others to believe. Uh, and so I came to the auditioning and to the show kind of bright eyed and uh, desiring 
and believing that this is an opportunity to learn about business from a successful billionaire. You know, I wanted to sit at the feet of the likes of a Janice Bryan Howroyd, somebody who's made it. This was 16 years ago that I was auditioning for the show. I was much younger, much less experienced, much less wiser, much less knowledgeable. And so I came into the show like a, like, like a, like a kid in the candy store. Like, this is just incredible. And what can I learn? This is what I won. And then had the opportunity to be the apprentice and work for Donald and the Trump organization. What can I learn? How much can I be a sponge for? And what I very quickly realized, which was a sobering lesson for me, which is number one to your question, is that all that glitters is not gold. And and in as much as the perception often of business is that you have to be cutthroat and you have to be backbiting and you have to believe that if you win, somebody loses, there's a different way to do business. It's the Janice Bryant Howroyd way of doing business. We can all win together. It's not a zero-sum game. More of the pie for me is not less of the pie for you. We can make the pie bigger together. And so I, I quickly learned that this experience is not what I thought it was going to be. And I learned more about what not to do if you want to do business ethically than what to do if you want to do business ethically. And that was a grounding, sobering, important experience for me as a young entrepreneur to know that I have to center my business on values and ethics because that's how I want to show up. The second lesson I learned was that at the time I was running a, a multi-million dollar firm and the Trump organization was a multi-billion dollar organization. And I had this fantasy that a multi-billion dollar organization must be doing something better or different than what we do at my modest multi-million dollar company. And as I'm sitting in executive meetings and strategy and planning and looking at reports and numbers and hearing how they do what they do, I learned another lesson, which is that billion dollar business is not dramatically different than a multi-million dollar business. They, they got more zeros on their budgets and balance sheet than we do, but the fundamentals of business, marketing, sales, operations, finance, accounting, the fundamentals are the fundamentals. And so it elevated my aspirations that if I thought I was doing something qualitatively different than the big boys and the big girls, guess what? You're not. And if you continue on this path, you too will grow your enterprise if you follow the fundamentals. And now we are, what is it, 90 spots behind Act One at 92 on the Black Enterprise 100. <laughs> and, and, and I draw I inspiration so, from you. I am so, I am so proud of, uh, of, of your lessons that you share, both uh, taught and learned. Uh, Randall, you are you are correct. We can do good. We can do well and do good at the same time. Um, That's right. And I don't know how much of what you're sharing with us is going to be in your book that you're releasing, but you have a book coming out, Black Faces in High Places, printed from Harper Collins, and you expect it to be out when in 2022? It'll be out in February 2022, Black History Month 2022. How soon are we able to order the book and how are we going to do it? I certainly will be posting uh, uh, onto all of my socials uh, 
this book, uh, but how soon can we start to look forward to it? I believe that orders will be ready in probably the November, December 2021 timeframe. So this fall, we should be able to accept pre-orders. It'll definitely be available for sale in January of 2022. And then uh, the official launch and the tour and the promotions will, will be in full force in February of 2022. All right. Okay. I can imagine that with it being available that soon in the year, folks are going to be able to have some good Juneteenth gifts. I hope so. I hope so. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll give you a shout because uh, you are a black face in a high place. And one of the people I profile in the book is you. Um, uh, my last book was Black Faces in White Places, which harkens back to my lived experience. And that book was about how do you get to the top? when you're in an environment where you are underrepresented or don't see reflections of yourself. The second book is not about how do you get to the top, but how do you stay at the top? You know that there's a different set of challenges getting to the top than once you get there and all eyes are on you and you're the decision maker and you're the final escalation point. And when things don't go quite right, it's on your desk. Like that's what we talk about in the book is once you're at the top, how do you make sure you're prepared and how do you make sure you can perform? And how do you make sure you don't forget who you are? And many who don't forget those who helped you get there and Amen. many who help you get there uh, can have some very wavering attitudes about you once you do. So mm -hmm. it, it, it's always a nimble game. It's always a nimble game. Mm -hmm. um, we got to do four for four. All right. <laughs> All right. Randall? going to ask you four questions and in return you will give me four answers and giving me why those are your answers and i am so excited to do this with you because <sighs> i just love your brain I, I i i'm so excited by your brain your first question is oh and and, and by the way um I made a bet with myself if I could predict what some of them were going to be. So I'm going <laughs> to let you know how well I did. Okay. Your first question, though, uh, is you get to invite four people to dinner from any time, past to present. Who's going to be seated at your table? All right. So first and foremost is uh, Jesus Christ. And uh and, and that could be the end of my list right there. Uh, and your menu, because he know how to feed people from nothing. <laughs> Four fish, that's right, the five loaves. Absolutely. Uh, I, I have Jesus. Uh, uh, but you do, do need to tell us why. Let's not think people lean in on the obvious always. True, 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 because. And I know you, like me, have friends who respect Jesus, but not as a savior. Absolutely. Understood. Understood. You know, and, and for me, it is, it, it, it's, 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 it's an unprecedented opportunity uh, for me to get to know the man that represents the human manifestation of the spirit to which I, I that I, I subscribe to and to glean the wisdom uh, both personally and societally, like, you know, you made me like, what was the vision, you know, given where we are in our society, you know, how do you reconcile that? You know, like, I want to, I want answers to those really deep questions that only for me, Jesus could answer and give me a, a set of insights that would be unparalleled from anyone else. Uh, 
Um, so that's number one. Uh, number two is Reginald Lewis. Mm. Who I know you know. Uh, mm. And I choose Reginald Lewis because my mom gave me his book, Why Should White Guys Have All the Fun, when mm -hmm. I graduated from college as a gift. And I had just started a business as a senior in college, but I didn't know what I was doing. I had no clue. I was making all kinds of mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I read that book in a day. That's the only book in my life I've ever read in a day. And this dude, for those of, in the family that don't know Reginald Lewis, he was the first African-American to not only run a billion dollar firm, but he did it by a leveraged buyout. So, you know, in some ways, Janice stands on the shoulders of a Reginald Lewis as a entrepreneur of a billion dollar enterprise. And he did it at a time where the largest black owned business was Johnson Publishing at 200 million. He ended up running a firm at 2 billion. So I want to talk to Reginald and be like, man, like, what was the mindset that you had to maintain to do such an unprecedented feat that was an order of magnitude beyond anything we had seen prior? So, so Reginald Lewis is, is number two. Uh, number three is Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. I love Oprah. Yes. I, I, I adore, I've never met Oprah. I wanna meet Oprah. I, I, that's why she's on my list. You know, uh, I want a picture. I want a selfie. <laughs> I want to put it on Twitter. <laughs> you want to fan out on her, right? You I do. I do. I do. Oh, my goodness. What a gracious, gracious woman she is. I remember being invited to a party in New York and Oprah had just gotten back from Africa and she was so gracious to attend that party, even though she had been on a wipeout trip with an Edulously grinding schedule while flying home. And um, first of all, she's so relatable. She told me she admired my shoes, even though they didn't fit her. And she told me I was lucky they didn't. That's Oprah Winfrey, y'all. She's just such an incredible lady. But more importantly, I remember reading um, in one of her uh, editions of her magazine, her saying, and I may be power quoting her, uh, doctor, but she said uh, to my memory, um, never dim your light that others may shine. Mm. And at the time I read that, it hit me like your truisms do, because that was pretty late in my career. Mm. And I was still of the mindset that because of this and this, I needed to either present my message through the voice of others who looked more up welcome mm -hmm. or figure out how to give that gift to someone else's, you know. Mm. And, 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 and when I read that, I was like, I built a business to a great degree doing this. Mm. And I was ashamed. Mm. Oprah shamed me into a phase of evolution. So mm. I get why she would be at dinner. And I tell you what, I'll be cooking in the kitchen and serving so I can I can listen in like, like our <laughs> folks used to do back in the day. Who's your who's your fourth guest? So I've been I've been debating between uh First Lady Michelle Obama, uh President Barack Obama, I was even going to maybe barter just so I could get them both under four. Uh, but I think I'm going to go with uh, with Malcolm X. Let me tell you why I go with Malcolm X. Uh, Jesus and Malcolm X. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? Uh, 
with Oprah in the middle. <laughs> with Oprah in the middle, you ain't lying, right? That's some that's some conversation right there. Uh, you know, uh, part of my renaissance and awakening that first semester, first year at Rutgers, when I got transformed into a whole new identity and immersed in a whole new culture. Uh, one of the first books I read was the autobiography of Malcolm X. And I think if there's anyone who could offer unique insight to how to get out of the mess we're in right now, because we're in a mess right now, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the list goes on. When you look at Malcolm's journey from the Nation of Islam uh, to his pilgrimage to Mecca, where he had this reawakening about matters of race and seeing the world through a less divisive and a more embracing philosophy. Um, and having traveled that journey from Omaha, Nebraska, all the way to the moment when he was assassinated, at, 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 I think Malcolm and the, the wisdom of having kind of been in the Black Power movement and having been out of the Black Power movement and trying to move his philosophy and his ministry into uh, a direction that was more unifying, uh, but also still honoring of the inequities that exist in society. I think Malcolm would be a tremendous scholar, activist, insights and wisdom on already appreciating how we got here, but more importantly, how do we get out of here? Wow, wow. And you're inviting him to the table with Jesus, <laughs> who is who is your Lord and Savior. Um, that's that's powerful. That's very powerful. What books, four books, do you recommend going to for four that our family read? These are must-read books, mm -hmm. and why? No, so and I, don't I, say yours because I'll be recommending that over and over and over. And I, I, I take that to heart. I wasn't going to, but I, 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 I will also follow your direction. Um, first, I want to say, uh, getting back to our beginning conversation, uh, "Purpose Driven Life" by Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if you, if you want the, the, uh, the playbook on living in your purpose and what it means to find and fulfill that purpose, Purpose Driven Life by Rick Warren. That's number one. Uh, number two, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen mm -hmm. R. Covey. Um, mm -hmm. I read that in college and I still reference that book to this day, uh, you know, 30 years later, uh, because it, it is a, 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 a grounding, uh, perspective on personal uh, development uh, and how to show up as your best self. And it's very other-centered, you know, uh, as opposed to self-centered. And, and, and so that would be number two, would be seven habits of, of highly effective people. Um, third is a book called The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Senge is a, uh, uh, was a professor at MIT. I don't know if he's still there or not, but to me, the fifth discipline is the equivalent of 
the seven habits of highly effective people for organizations. Mm-hmm. If you want to understand how organizations can function most effectively and have a set of grounding principles, like a person should, if a person should have identity and purpose, an organization should have a mission and a vision and values and certain scaffolds that make for organizations that honor human principles and human life. And that is what the fifth discipline offers is that set of grounding principles for an organization. Um, Then my last book I would say is uh, probably Where Do We Go From Here? Chaos or Community by the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, Much like I would wanna dine with Malcolm X, uh, for the times that we're living in, that book is eerily reminiscent of where we are now. And ties back to your thesis. It does. It absolutely does. And, you know, King wrote that book as his last book before he died. And he had just spent time in Chicago, living in Chicago, kind of seeing firsthand the challenges of poverty and economic injustice and seeing the social injustice and the uprisings that were occurring throughout America as a result of the inequities that we're now seeing now. And what that book offered then is what that book offers now is where do we go from here? Chaos or community? And we're at the same crossroad right now, the same crossroad. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a sign, I've repeated this often lately, uh, that was inscribed over a building called Helms Bakery. And I used to go in there and shop in antiques. And it said, those who forget their history are doomed to repeat it. We continue to learn the same lessons over and over again without applying them wholeheartedly to some of the issues that face us. Mm-hmm. It takes us back to the humanness who we of who we are without the humanity of who we can be. And well I said. am just so blown away well uh, said. by your book referrals. We're going three for four. Mm-hmm. Okay. What for in terms of music are you listening to and why? All right. All right. So And is Uh, it real different from before COVID? Like, you know, some people's playlists changed up during COVID and others were like (laughs) dedicated. Others were dedicated. They kept it going. (laughs) So uh, I I, I, I never stop listening to Public Enemy. Mm -hmm. Public Enemy is is a part of the fabric of my existence. And it gets Mm -hmm. back to my my renaissance. which I, I, I started college in 1989. And if you know Public Enemy, you know that their biggest hit was Fight the Power. Right. It came from the movie Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. And you know that the very first words of the song are 1989. Mm-hmm. And that's the first word. And he says, a number, another summer, get down to the funky drummer. And it goes and goes and goes. But that song was released the year I hit college. And so that song, it, it I mean, it, it lives in me. <laughs> I mean, I take yeah, it everywhere yeah, I yeah. go. Like, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to date myself because my public any was Nikki Giovanni and the last po- the poets. <laughs> <laughs> but you can relate. 
You can relate. Uh-huh. Absolutely. Uh-huh. Oh, Nikki, Nikki, Nikki. Oh, come on now. Y'all, she brought it. you better go check Nikki Giovanni out. She brought it. She brought it mm-hmm. without question. No, no. She was a poet activist. Let's be clear. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, so, and, and the last poets too. That's right. That's exactly right. So mm-hmm. public enemy stays on my on my iPhone, it stays in my in my rotation at the gym. It it, it stays in my in my blood in my system. So that's that's number one. Uh, number two is you know I'm uh, you know I'm a romantic Janice. I'm, I mean I'm I'm that dude who grew up on '70s slow jams and you know and, right. I, I, look, we started <laughs> out. Come on, you a nerd and you cool. <laughs> and you said smooth. You called yourself smooth. <laughs> Yes. Oh, so, tell us what smooth, smooth Doctor P listening. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'd say right now I'm I'm rocking some uh, some 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 baby face still in my oh, in my yeah. rotation. And my, my oh, wife's yeah. a big, okay. my wife's a big baby face fan too. And and I, and I, I and I could cast a wide net because he's got stuff he did himself and stuff he wrote for other people. And and I, all I of it is baby making. <laughs> That's why they call him Babyface. <laughs> so that's number two. Um, number three, you know, I'm also into this neo soul uh, thing here. So, you know, I'm gonna put uh, I'm gonna put Jill Scott uh, mm-hmm. in the mix because uh, we both got Philadelphia roots. Uh, mm-hmm. Big big Jill Scott fan. You know, there's a couple of people that are still holding up my favorite genre R and B. Jill's holding it up. Maxwell's holding it up. You know, Kem is holding it up. But so I'm gonna put Jill out there as uh, number three, uh, and I appreciate my brother's, my brother's, my brother's uh, son, who oddly enough is graduating uh, next year from North Carolina A and T. And when he was a little kid, I remember my brother picking me up to take me to the airport, and he was bumping Jill, and he said, "You know, this morning his son's name is Cameron." He said, you met my brother Carlton. He said, you know, this morning I was blown away. Cameron was singing Jill Scott. Mm. And he said, I didn't realize just how powerful she was to him. Well, Cameron today is a guitar player, quite an accomplished one. And he still can, uh, can, you know, like give it to Jill Scott. So when you're talking about the power of her music and the others, as you mentioned it, they do influence us. And it's not just in our adult choice consciousness. It's also in how our parents raise us and what we listen to becomes a part of that whole community you were talking about early. And especially for kids like you and my kids who grow up Black in in different or multicultural communities, how they have that self-identity. Oftentimes it's through our music that we gain it and it's through our music that we share it. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Who's number four? Because you lumped Jill in with Maxwell and everybody. <laughs> no, I, I, I cheated a little bit. Um, so uh, the last one is, 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 is symbolic as much as it is personal. Uh, I've got three business partners. Uh, we all went to college together. Um, Jeffrey Robinson, uh, Lawrence Hibbert and Dallas Grundy. They're like brothers, they're like family. And, and, I, and I know you've had an incredible team that's allowed you to grow Act One. And I couldn't imagine this journey as an entrepreneur without having those three brothers by my side. I don't know how folks do it without a good team. I just don't know how they do it. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and I love them dearly. And, they, and, and, and we're like family. Their kids call me uncle. The list goes on and on and on. But I often 
there's four of us. I often draw the metaphor of our relationship. I, I call us new edition with no Bobby Brown. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Bye. <laughs> and so for those that know the new edition story, it was five members of the group, but they had one troublemaker <laughs> and they had to kick him out. Bobby, Bobby, Bobby. That's right. That's, that's right. And for those in the family, it's Bobby Brown, who was married to Whitney Houston in the, in the story, as the story goes. And so uh, I grew up a big fan of New Edition. Uh, and, and I love the New Edition story that played out on uh, TV One about a year ago. I was glued to the TV. And so by virtue shout of- Shout out to Kathy Hughes. Shouts to Kathy Hughes. Shouts to Kathy Hughes. And so by virtue of uh, me growing up as a big New Edition fan and now feeling metaphorically and almost symbolically like they, because because you know what, if you do your homework, you'd be hard pressed to find a group after 2000 that made the charts and stayed together. Most artists today are solo artists. There are very few groups, unlike pre-2000, where they were quite popular. And I could go on in the reasons behind that, but suffice to say, there's something about the difficulty of coming together and staying together. Everybody can't be the four tops, can they? Everybody can't be the four tops. And everybody can't be the, the lead singer in the spotlight. Some folks are going to sing background. And maybe you'll get your shot to sing lead. But the point is, we all have a position. Know your position and play your position. And know you can't do anything alone. And so new addition to me is both symbolic and metaphoric. That's my number four, new addition. Uh, 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 Pastor J, Reverend J.L. Armstrong, who's a personal spiritual uh, 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 guy for me, told me years ago, know your ministry when I was all torn up about something that I felt I couldn't do. And I, I, I wanted to do this thing, but, you know, it's not in me. And he told me, but there's so much more in you that will help those who can do that you wish to do so that you can get it done. He said, mm -hmm. know your ministry. Sometimes you do it. And sometimes you simply pave the way to get it done. You know, well well um, I, 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 I'm just so inspired by you. And so we're going four for four now. <laughs> Share with us four pieces of advice you most think valuable to our family. And if you're sharing advice that was handed on to you, make sure you acknowledge that you're paying it forward, whether you give credit to by name or simply credit by spirit. But, uh, and if it's yours, let us know how you innovate the advice. All right. Um, I don't know who came up with the first one, uh, but I know it wasn't me. That wasn't me. Uh, show me your friends and show me your future. It's a simple one. Uh, you know, uh, iron. Hashtag. 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 Iron. I mean, that, that, there's lots of ways it's been said. Iron sharpens iron. Uh you know, a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. The, long, the list goes on, but, you know, you can learn a lot about somebody by who they are surrounded by. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. you can learn a lot about where you're going based on who you surround yourself with. So mm -hmm. that's my first. And I, I'm, I'm ever mindful that 
I don't want to be the smartest person in the room. If so, if so that's a problem. <laughs> yeah, and that takes Although some humility. Often you are, often you are. <laughs> I don't know. Your, your, your humility allows us to think we understand. Touche, Janet. Touche. Second lesson would be uh, this is a long one here. Uh, shoot for the stars and not the mountaintop. Because if you shoot for the mountaintop and you don't make it, you'll fall to the bottom of the mountain. But if you mm -hmm. shoot for the stars and you don't make it, you will fall to the top of the mountain. Mm. I don't know that again. That, that one's not me either. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you're still dropping gems. You're dropping. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's something to be said. Oh, I'll even say it even more succinctly. And this is uh, the Dr. Benjamin Mays, who was the Reverend Dr. King, Martin Luther King Jr.'s mentor at Morehouse College. Uh, not failure, but low aim is sin. It's saying the same thing. You know, mm -hmm. what is your aspiration? And I've learned through my life to never set your sights too high. Because um, mm -hmm. the worst you can do is fall to the top of the mountain. And that's not a bad place to be, family. It's not a bad place mm -hmm. to be. It's a good view from the top of the mountain. <laughs> so that's number two. Uh, Number three, it's one of my favorite quotes. And this, is, this one's unknown. Um, uh, we are not meant to see through each other, but to see each other through. Wow. Yeah, yeah, that's a good wow. one. Yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, yeah, <laughs> and that, you know, and, 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 and you know, it, it, it really speaks to this calling that we talked about earlier. You know, are you, you know, society not only calls you to be success, society puts pressure on you to be successful. How much money do you make? What kind of job do you have? What car do you drive? How big is your house? Blah, blah, blah. I do not believe we are called to be successful. And there's nothing wrong with aspiring to success. Don't, don't get me wrong. I believe we're called to be great. Mm -hmm. That we're called to answer the question, not what have you done for yourself, but what have you done for somebody else? And when we are able to see everyone for who they are and what they bring, we're able to support everybody. And I see our role as all being servant leaders. We are all in service to others. And so that's, 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 that's number three. And um, number four, on the heels of that one, is mine. <laughs> and I say oftentimes that, uh, I say that, uh, Success, success. Let, me, let me get my book here for a second. What's in my book? Hang on a second. See, there we go. We got to go. I the so book. appreciate you going back and grabbing it for us. <laughs> That's right. There it is, right there. Yeah. And here's what we say in the book um, Success is not the standard, greatness is the goal. Success is not the standard, greatness is the goal. Um, I love and, you saying that. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I often tell folks, Here's a perfect example of success and greatness. Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. By, if I gave you Harriet Tubman's resume, meaning her amount of money that she earned, you know, the titles that she earned, you know, the wealth that she amassed by any societal measure of success and the measures of success, fortune, fame, you know, money, et cetera, no one would have no one would define Harriet Tubman as successful in that context, in that context. Uh, but if 
the markers of greatness are service, compassion, benevolence, you know, uh, paying it forward. Come on now. That woman was great. And I would much rather go to my grave with folks saying Randall Pinkett was great than people saying Randall Pinkett was successful. Like, 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 like Mahatma Gandhi and Mother Teresa. Wow, uh, that that truly was drop the mic moment. As uh, T.D. Jakes, uh, Pastor T.D. Jakes is telling us, don't drop the mic. You know, we need people to pick up the microphone and keep and mm -hmm. keep the word going. And certainly, uh, Dr. Pinkett, you are so incredible to that, um, guys. When black faces in high places comes out. We got to get it. In the meantime, hold up that other one. They can read it in readiness. There you go. Black faces in white places. <laughs> and Dr. Pinkett, it, it's just been such, such an humbling joy to be present to your tutelage today. Um, I'm forever grateful to it. I look forward to many, many years of knowing and friending with you. Um, and if you're really serious about us doing that remix, I look forward to that too. <laughs> I can hardly wait until we're able to share the same basket of bread together. Until then, from my heart to your home, thank you with God's speed. Thank you, Janice. And thank you for your example. I'm gonna say it this way. Thank you for you demonstrating what legacy is. I describe legacy as your light, your love, and your life. Your light is your example. Thank you, Janice, for your example. Your love is your service to others. Thank you for all you've done for others. And your life is your life's work. All you've done as an entrepreneur, as a philanthropist, as a professional, as a woman, all of those things are your life's work. And that work is still being done. And so as the chapters of your book are still being written, thank you for the book we have. And thank you for the chapters that will be written. I'm standing on your shoulders and, I, and, and endeavoring to take the baton and pass it forward to the next generation that your work will not be in vain and that my work will not be in vain, but that that progression will continue. God bless you and thank you.